Friends, indeed, it's a, it's a joy uh, to be able to see so many of you. And I, I do want to just encourage us, especially those who uh, still haven't come back in person, uh, we do want to encourage you to come back and worship with us uh, in person. Uh, if your experience is anything like mine back when we had to do all our worship online, um, how, do you, how, how, how do I say this? Uh, I've spoken to a few people who say they prefer in-person worship, but I have not met anyone who said that their worship life was improved by uh, worshipping online. Yeah. So, just want to encourage us yeah, to uh, come back in person to worship. I assure you that we have gone over and beyond to provide, um, uh, uh, done all the necessary stuff to the necessary precautions so that we can worship together uh, safely. A uh, very blessed Mother's Day to all of you this morning. Uh, whether you're a biological mother or a, a mother figure, right? We are thankful for your love and the investment of your life in those whom you mother. Uh, if you're wondering why today uh, my sermon is titled... Uh, is it? Uh, okay, thank you. Yeah, my sermon today is titled Manhunt. Okay, if you're wondering why it's titled Manhunt, uh, please know that this is not a sermon telling mothers to go down and hunt, hunt down the men in their family, okay? Uh, it's just that we can't skip <laughs> too many portions of Scripture in our sermon series. Uh, we need to be able to finish up First Samuel somewhere around the half midpoint of the year before we can transition over to cover the book of Acts in the second half of the year. Okay, so please do go for your Mother's Day celebrations later, okay, but for the message today, we are continuing with First uh, Samuel and Saul and David's drama, okay? But before we continue further, let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for this morning and this occasion to worship together. Uh, we recognize that in person, we are together. Online, we are also together. And Lord, in this spirit of unity, we ask that you join our hearts in worship. And even now, as we listen to your word, even as I preach, Lord, I pray that we'll be faithful in our attitudes and that, Lord, you do your work, the work that you wish to accomplish in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like us to start off with a video. Audio, please. Wanted man doing whatever it takes to get away. Nick and the team regroup. Just as the team prepare for yet another box, there's a problem. A junction ahead leads to residential areas. 
With busy urban streets avoided, the team close in again. And there's a chance to end the chase. The suspect attempts to continue. He's boxed in. Okay. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with these police car chase videos. Uh, this is from a reality TV show. It's a real-life recording of a criminal trying to evade the police in a high-speed chase. Uh, I actually wanted to show you another video, but it was the, it's, it's the slowest police car chase in the world. So there's this guy driving at like 6 km per hour. Uh, the police have a policy that doesn't allow them to overtake. So for about three hours, they were just going at 6 km per hour <laughs> chase. Anyway, the, the, point, the point of that chase, uh, the point of this, this video of, of showing you uh, this, this police car chase is to show you how people can behave when they're hunted, right? When they get desperate, how they, they, uh, they maneuver, right? And you saw just now that I, he didn't drive like how a, a wise person would be driving, right? I hope none of you drive like that also. Uh, and so when, when people get desperate, especially when they're being chased and hunted, they don't always make the best decisions. Often they will regret the, deci the decisions that they make out of desperation. Uh, today's passage, not as exciting as a high-speed chase, but we see David fleeing from Saul, and in his desperation to get away from Saul, he also does not make all the best decisions. And that brings me to our takeaway message today, and that is how we respond to our mistakes is absolutely crucial. Okay? How we respond to our mistakes is absolutely crucial. Now, we last left Saul uh, hostile towards David, right? He's jealous of David in chapter 18. And now Saul already has this idea that David wants to overthrow him as king, okay? That idea has already been planted in his mind. Now, since then, since we left Saul and David in chapter 18, David has married Saul's daughter, okay? Because Saul tried to basically get David killed off uh, by sending him to more dangerous missions. And uh, Saul ends up becoming, sorry, David ends up becoming Saul's son-in-law. And he also enjoys the favor of God in Saul's kingdom. When, whenever Saul sent him on dangerous missions in order to try to get David killed, God gave him success, right? We saw that. And so this causes Saul to fear David more and more and more. And then finally, Saul openly gives an order to Jonathan, his son, and also the rest of his men to kill David. Okay, and he says, uh, he, he orders the, the death of David. Jonathan manages to persuade Saul, okay, don't kill him. Okay, he's, he's a good guy and blah, blah, blah. 
Okay, he manages to persuade him, but eventually Saul uh, basically breaks again. He, he snaps again and he tries to kill David again. And so eventually David has to flee the kingdom. He has to flee the kingdom as an enemy of the king. Now Saul doesn't have a good reason to kill David. Okay, everybody who tries to reason with him uh, basically says so, you know, that David is innocent, he is loyal, what reason do you have? But Saul is king. A king doesn't need a good reason because a king's will is law. Okay, that's, that's how it was back then. And so David flees the kingdom, and as he flees, he stops by the town of Nob on his way out. Now, the town of Nob is one of the priestly towns, one of the priestly towns in the area of Benjamin, okay? And Benjamin is the tribe that Saul is from. And so, Nob is a, a town full of priests. You imagine maybe about a hundred, uh, maybe 200-ish people, okay? Maybe 300. And uh, it's all families of priests, okay? So, you imagine a, a town that's full of uh, all the pastors, <laughs> they, they all stay there with their families. Uh, that's a bit like uh, the town of Nob. Okay, so Nob seems to have replaced the town of Shiloh as the main place of worship. So if you remember, back when the, the Ark of the Covenant where it was captured, that was from the town of Shiloh. That's where God's worship and sacrifice and all that was, was uh, anchored. And so the Philistines defeated the Israelites, probably destroyed Shiloh, we don't really hear about it, and now Nob is the centre of priestly activity. And so David runs to Nob, he meets Ahimelech. Ahimelech is the priest, the high priest. He is the great-grandson of Eli, the high priest. Okay, so you... You, you can sort of piece together all the stuff that we've been reading and, and uh, learning about in the earlier parts of 1 Samuel. It's coming together, okay? So, David meets Ahimelech and Ahimelech notices, he suspects something is wrong, okay? Because David is unarmed, David is alone, okay? He's not actually alone, he has a few loyal companions with him, but it is unusual for such uh, uh, an important official like David to only have uh, a few men accompanying him. Okay? Because David is not just a commander of the king's armies, he's also the captain of the king's bodyguard. He is royal family, he is the king's son-in-law, okay? So he's a big deal already in the kingdom of Israel. And so such an important official would not be unescorted. He would usually have a, a larger contingent of soldiers uh, as a royal guard wherever he went. Okay, so Ahimelech notices, David, where's your entourage? Okay, where are your outriders? And then what is wrong? Okay, and so Ahimelech asks David, why are you alone, right? And here's where David decides to do something that has both unintended and far-reaching consequences. 
And what he does is he tells a lie, right? He, he deceives Ahimelech. Now, we saw earlier how someone on the run from the police endangered so many lives, not just his own life, but also the life of the police, potentially the life of other uh, people on the road, uh, housing area and all that. And so they endangered so many lives because of the desperate situation that they were in. Now, the, the Bible often paints David in a very positive light, especially in his early days, right? He's like a hero, okay? We, we always look at David as, wow, this good guy, right? Slayer of Goliath, persecuted by Saul. Then maybe when it comes to Bathsheba and, and uh, Uriah the Hittite, then we start to think, eh, he made a mistake. But before that, we tend to think that David is very squeaky clean, Okay, but in today's passage, when Ahimelech asks him why he's alone, out of the desperation of his situation, the fact that he's running from Saul, he deceives Ahimelech, right? And he tells him, he tells him, the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. Okay, as, as for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. So, David is basically telling Ahimelech, oh, I'm alone because I'm on a secret mission. <laughs> the king has sent me on a secret mission. Don't tell anybody I was here, basically. And so you can almost see what David is thinking. You can almost see his thoughts. I'm running for my life. I can't risk anyone telling Saul where, where I went. And so I need to lie my way out of this. And besides, Ahimelech, whatever he doesn't know can't hurt him. That's probably part of his reasoning. And so maybe he was even thinking that it's, it's probably safer for him not to know that I'm on the run. Okay, but we'll see later that this deception has very serious consequences. Now, on top of not having his location revealed, David also asked for food and a weapon. And so David asked Ahimelech uh, for food, okay, five loaves of bread. And the, the priest says, I don't have you know, ordinary bread, I only have this consecrated bread. And he agrees to give it to David if they are ritually clean. Now let me uh, just sidetrack a bit to talk about this consecrated bread because one, one of the opportunities of preaching through a series is that we can sort of tackle uh, different elements that are not so clear at first reading, okay? So the, the consecrated bread is also known as the bread of the presence, and it's part of the worship system that God instructed the Israelites to follow. And so 12 loaves of bread, probably to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, were placed in the holy place. And so if you remember the architecture of the tabernacle, uh, yeah, the outer courts, inner courts, holy place, holy of holies, where only the high priest can go in, the Ark of the Covenant is there. This is just outside, okay? So there's a curtain separating the holy of holies from the holy place. The, the consecrated bread, the bread of the presence is just outside the holy of holies, okay, in the holy place. And so this bread would be offered, but it's not offered to feed God, Okay? So, unlike 
many other religions where there are food offerings because it's meant to be to to feed the God, to make the God happy that giving food. But this was not the purpose. Okay, the, the purpose of, of this bread was a symbol to remind the people of how God was their provider. Okay, so it wasn't wasn't to feed God. Huh? And so this bread, because bread will get moldy, eh? bread, this bread will be replaced once a week on the Sabbath. And every time it was replaced, it was to be eaten by a priest in a holy place. Okay, so not everyone could eat it. According to the instructions given to the Israelites, the priests are the ones who are considered holy and so only they could eat this holy bread. Okay? And so David and his companions were given the consecrated bread to eat, even though it was meant to only be eaten by the priests. Now, if, if this story sounds a little familiar outside of 1 Samuel, it's because you heard it from Jesus, right? In Matthew chapter 12. And so there, Jesus is using this story talking about David and his companions eating this, this uh, holy bread when they're not supposed to legally. Uh, Jesus uses it to prove a point to the religious leaders that they were debating about the Sabbath. Huh? So Jesus was saying, your legalistic interpretation of the Sabbath is not consistent with God's will. Okay, it's the bigger picture of God's will. That God wants to provide, God wants to preserve life, but you are using this Sabbath law in order to restrict people, in order to make life difficult. Okay, so Jesus is trying to uh, prove that point. And so, Jesus uses this story to illustrate that although technically unlawful, it's not lawful for David and his companions to eat this consecrated bread. Uh, the, the religious leaders wouldn't have had a problem with it because they held David in such high regard. And so Jesus is just trying to use this story to, to prove his point. Lah, okay? So, coming back to David. David and his men, they take this bread, they eat it, right? they get some food, supplies. David also asked for a weapon. And Goliath's sword is here. Why is it here? David probably offered it as a as an offering, okay, after his battle. And again, he deceives Ahimelech. He tells him he's unarmed because of the, the urgency of his mission. That's why he has no weapons. So he asks for the weapon, and he gets it. Now, one of Saul's servants was there, and that is Doeg the Edomite, okay? And he's observing all of this. Now, the Edomites were Israel's enemies. Doeg might have been a prisoner of war. Uh, he might have been Saul's mercenary. He might even be one of Saul's officials. They call him chief shepherd, but that's like a diplomatic title. Nah. So whoever he was, whatever function he had, he was a foreigner. Okay? And he happened to be there, either as part of some worship thing or some sort of punishment. Now this guy is important. Because later, he testifies what he sees to Saul, and that leads to the death of Ahimelech and the entire town of Nob at his hands, at the hands of Doeg, 
the Edomite. So he, in this story, he is a, a villain of sorts. But David is not completely innocent either. When he lies to Ahimelech, he makes Ahimelech an unwitting accomplice. He is now helping a national fugitive. And that's something that Doeg witnesses. And so that makes David directly responsible for the deaths of Ahimelech, his family, the, the, the priests, their families in the whole town of Nob. David is directly responsible for all those things. He admits that. Right? Uh, David knew that Doeg would tell Saul about Ahimelech helping David. Maybe he didn't know that Saul would end up slaughtering the whole town, but he took a gamble with Ahimelech's safety, right? And he lost. And so this would be one of David's uh, few recorded failures, other than the, the Bathsheba thing. This is one of the few uh, failures that, that we have on record about David. But it offers us a major insight. It shows us the character of David. Right? It shows us that David took responsibility for his actions. He owned up to his mistake, even though it's such a disastrous one. Can you imagine being responsible for the annihilation of an entire town? Let's say, okay, I don't know what town is about, the size of 200, 300 people, but you, you imagine uh, you're responsible for the deaths of everyone in Aietam. Wow. <laughs> Kanala, right? You, 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 you feel so horrible, you want to try and, and explain away why this is not entirely your fault. But David accepts responsibility. Now, remember this is the man after God's own heart that Samuel prophesied would take over Saul's kingdom. So he is supposed to be the 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 Israel's good king, version 2.0, but he is far from perfect. On top of this deception and gamble with Ahimelech's safety, we see also later, obviously, uh, his, his whole thing with uh, adultery and murder. And so David is not a perfect person. Although he is always painted in a good light as a hero, uh, he is not a perfect person. And still, David is remembered as a man after God's own heart. Okay, that's what he is known for, even in the New Testament. So what is this thing? What, what, what makes him a man after God's heart? Well, we know that he had great faith, faith in God. Okay, that's one. Uh, we also know that he loved God's word, right? that he would meditate on it day and night. Many of the Psalms tell us that. We also know that he had a very active and, and passionate worship life. And so all those things were him seeking after God's own heart. But one key component that would make him a man after God's heart was that he sincerely repented every time he sinned against God, at least the, the, the records that we have. Lah, right? Every time he sinned against God, he acknowledged his sin, he owned up to it, and he sincerely repented. Compare this to how Saul reacts. Just to give you the, the two very obvious examples of 
how Saul reacts to failure. Uh, the, the first time that Samuel rebuked Saul, remember Saul went and made a burnt offering against God's instructions, right? Saul doesn't take responsibility for his actions. He tries to blame it on Samuel. <laughs> he says, you know, uh, you, you didn't come in time, uh, and you weren't here yet, and so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. So it's your fault because you're late. Okay, so he, he doesn't take responsibility, he tries to pin the blame on someone else. The second obvious time uh, when he was rejected, uh, where, when Saul is rejected as king, he doesn't carry out God's command to completely annihilate the Amalekites, to, to wipe them out. He, he preserves some of the good spoils of war, the cattle and sheep, the plunder. Okay? He doesn't kill the king because it gives him political advantage. And so, after Samuel questions him, why did he leave those, uh, uh, leave, leave all that alive? Why did he not carry out God's command? He tries to pretend that he's done nothing wrong. He even tries to pin the blame on his men. You know, he says, uh, my men, <laughs> my soldiers, they are the ones who took all these things, right? And actually, we had good intentions. We wanted to sacrifice to God. And so, we see that Saul is a person who uh, tries to justify himself and pin the blame on other people, he does not take responsibility for his own failings. Now, friends, David isn't exemplary because he is sinless, because he is perfect, because he is superhuman. Instead, he is an example of a flawed human being responding to the mistakes that he has made in a way that pleases God. I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. It gives me hope that although we're all called to be holy, we're called to observe God's commands, uh, to, to be different from the world, when we don't live up to that, it's not the end of the world for us. Right? God doesn't expect perfection because right now it is, perfection is impossible with our sinful nature. Instead, what God wants is a humble heart that is quick and ready to admit our faults, to repent of them, to hold fast to God because we know how much we need His grace, how much we need His mercy, how, how much we need His, His continuing work in our lives to make us more like Christ. And so God desires that heart of humble repentance, quick to admit our faults. And so I just want to pause now for us to reflect on this question and also for those at home to discuss among yourselves. Why do you think it's often so difficult for us to take responsibility for mistakes? And follow-up question, what makes it easier for you to take responsibility for your mistakes? For the children, do you like admitting it when you make a mistake? Obviously not, right? So why not? Okay, let's spend two minutes reflecting on this.
Okay, let's move on to the second part of today's message, and that is Saul. Now, just as how David was desperate to escape Saul, Saul was desperate to destroy David. And we see Saul also make very bad decisions in this out of desperation. And his actions have massive consequences. Now, by this time, in this point of the, the story, Saul is in full-blown paranoia about David, okay? How David wants to be a rival for the throne. David is out to get him. And so he, he's already got all these conspiracy theories brewing. And so in this passage, we see that the trend has been continuing and so a uh, uh, continued escalation of Saul's fears. We see that Saul doesn't just believe that you know, David is trying to take over his throne. Now David is lying in wait for him, okay? Probably to assassinate him, to remove him from the throne some other way. And so David has malicious intentions beyond just wanting to take the throne. Now he wants to do it in, in very secret and dirty ways. And Saul also accuses his own officials of conspiring with David. He thinks that his own son, Jonathan, is in on this conspiracy. Why? Because he made a covenant with him, with David. Okay, should probably talk about this a bit. The covenant that, that Saul is referring to between Jonathan and David is found in uh, both chapter 18 and chapter 20. And Jonathan makes basically two covenants, two instances, right? One is a covenant between him and David. The other one is between him, his house and David's house. Okay, so they are descendants. Now, some today try to say that, okay, you look at these covenants, you look at the way they, they treat each other and all that. There's some sort of sexual relationship between David and Jonathan. I'm sure this is not new, right? You, were, you may have heard this before. But I just want to clarify a bit that the Hebrew words used in, in the passages where all this stuff takes place, uh, the, the Hebrew word for love and, and the, the other things that they, the other customs that they do, are actually not consistent with the words that are used for a sexual relationship. It is always within a context of something more platonic. Okay, so even, even the passage that says uh, that you know, Jonathan loved David as himself, or was it the other way around? The, the love there is not the same sort of sexual love that the, the Hebrew Bible often uses. Okay, so... Instead, all the words that are used in, in those passages, so I'm not going to do an in-depth study, this is just to satisfy your curiosity. All the words used there refer to diplomacy, it refer to a platonic friendship. Okay, and the covenant that is made between them is not a covenant of marriage, huh? okay, please don't misunderstand. It is like a pledge, it is an alliance of friendship. It is an alliance between their two houses, Okay, so it's, this was something that was not uncommon in the ancient Near East. These friendship covenants, these alliances, these pledges. So you just think of the, the various treaties that are made okay, between one family and another family. 
you and your men, me and my family, uh, we will not fight. We will share this land. You know, those, those kind of things. So, what this means is that, uh, so coming back to Saul, what this means is that Saul believes that the covenant that Jonathan has made with David is Saul's own son allying himself with his rival to overthrow him, to usurp his throne. Okay, and so you, you, you think of uh, those, all those, um, how to say, those medieval dramas, lah. okay, I won't name what specific ones, where they will often have power plays within their families and they try to take over the throne, they ally with their enemy and all that. So Saul has those conspiracy theories going on. So Saul's fear has extended beyond David to his own men, even to his own son. And now it extends even further because Doeg the Edomite speaks up when he hears about Saul accusing his men. Uh, he, he says, hey, I saw David, the son of Jesse, uh, meet with Ahimelech, the priest. Okay? He's trying to earn points la, with, with Saul. Okay? So now, now that, that Doeg has mentioned Ahimelech, Saul's paranoia extends to include Ahimelech, the high priest. Eventually, it extends to include the whole priesthood. You see, when Saul orders the priests of Nob to be exterminated, he's not just exacting revenge on Ahimelech, saying, you know, why you let him go, uh, why you help him. Uh, he is actually, he, he believes that the priesthood has sided with David. Okay? Uh, yeah, so verse 17. Turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, but they did not tell me. And so Saul's paranoia, his conspiracy theory, has extended even to the priesthood. Then now the priesthood is against him and trying to give the kingdom over to David. Now the priests in ancient kingdoms, they weren't just religious people. Okay, so they are not just people who do different religious rituals. They also had a lot of political influence uh, as representatives of God. And they would often be the ones who would legitimize somebody's reign. Okay, so they would be the one who, who uh, anoints, recognizes, declare to the people, you know, this is God's chosen king. Okay, and so Saul is determined that anyone remotely connected to this conspiracy, this royal conspiracy to overthrow him, would be punished. So Ahimelech tries to reason with Saul. He tells him, all these conspiracies, you're ridiculous, right? Uh, David was so faithful to you. He is loyal. Uh, besides, I am innocent. I don't know anything about this. But Saul already made up his mind to kill Ahimelech and his family. As a side note, this is a fulfillment of one of the prophecies made against Eli and his descendants. Uh, so if you remember back when uh, Hophni, Phinehas, right, Eli, the prophet came to Eli and told him that uh, a time is coming when all your descendants will die at a young age. Eventually, you will have no more descendants left 
to continue in the priesthood. Okay? And so this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Eventually, Abiathar, the last of Eli's lineage, will die. Okay? That is during David's reign. Okay, but coming back to Saul's order to kill the priests, it was probably intended as a deterrent. You know, I, you see, I killed this whole town, so don't try and help this family, okay, or else that will happen to you. That was probably uh, one, of the way, one of the reasons why Saul did it. But if you look at how Saul behaves up to this point, very irrational, very impulsive, trying to kill David. What is more likely is that this is just a fit of rage. This is just Saul freaking out and saying, everyone is against me, kill all of them. Okay, so he orders the killing, not just of innocent people, but the priests of the God of Israel. And so this is such a sacrilegious command, not just to kill innocent people, but priests, uh, uh, people who... who uh, meant to be holy, uh, and, and it's such a sacrilegious command that his own officers hesitate. They don't want to obey this order. They might even have uh, been fellow tribesmen because town of Nob is in the Benjamite territory. Uh, Saul surrounded himself with his officials, all Benjamites. Okay, so Saul orders. Okay, fine. You guys don't want to. You, you guys don't want to obey me. You, Doak, the Edomite foreigner, no, no uh, family linkage, uh, you kill them. Okay, so Doak does it. He kills Ahimelech and the other priests, 85 in total, together with the people of the town of Nob, including women, children, livestock. Now, this is complete annihilation. Okay, and it's actually the type of annihilation that God commanded Saul to do to the Amalekites, the thing that got him rejected in the first place. But he failed to do that, and instead of being God's holy instrument to destroy a pagan nation according to God's instructions, here Saul is behaving like a pagan king, and he is wiping out God's holy priests. And so this is probably one of Saul's lowest points, not just the mass murder of innocents, but specifically people who are dedicated to the service of the God of Israel. It's almost like an act carried out against God himself. Now, during that time in the surrounding nations, a king could actually bring a charge against a god in, in uh, the, the god of a political enemy, okay, especially when they're overthrowing a kingdom, uh, they will pronounce judgment, okay, you, this, this god of this king, uh, not good. <laughs> and so they actually pronounce a sentence. And then they will wipe out the priesthood of that god and remove all traces of worship of that god from the kingdom and replace it with another god. Okay, so that was something that happened back then. And so whether Saul is actually trying to do that to disown the Lord, the God of Israel, and replace with another God, or this is just a fit of rage, whatever. The end result, what happens as a result of all this, is he cuts himself off from all contact with God. Okay, now we need to remember that at this point, 
Saul relies on the priests to inquire of God for him. They are his connection to God. So no more priests, no more inquiring of God. No more priests, no more worship of God. Okay, so we see that this is very far-reaching consequences for Saul and the people of Israel. Near the end of Saul's life, he tries inquiring of the Lord in uh, chapter 28, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or urim or prophets. Notice the absence of priests. And so he ends up consulting a medium at Endor. That's why he does that. So just like how David is an example of humbly recognizing his mistakes and repenting, Saul is a warning a warning of persisting down the path of unrepentance and rebellion against God and his ways. And we've been looking at how Saul's unrepentant journey down the path of pride and disobedience to God leads to an increasing amount and escalation of wickedness. Eventually, it results in him murdering a whole town of priests. Now, if you remember the story, uh, two, I think about two months back, I told you this story from Star Wars, right? Episode 3. Yeah. About uh, Anakin Skywalker. He started down the dark side. Ayo, this is too dark. <laughs> anyway, uh, Anakin Skywalker started down the dark side. Eventually, he ends up murdering 20 children who are training to be Jedis. Okay, that's, that's a, a big deal uh, in the Star Wars universe. Okay, so that's actually very similar to what Saul is doing here, the same kind of low point in their lives. Saul could have repented many times earlier. He could have stepped off this self-destructive path that he was on, but he persisted. He persisted in pursuing his own glory. He persisted in pursuing his own agenda at the expense of God's agenda, God's glory. So friends, I wonder if any of us today, if we are honest with ourselves, whether any of us can identify with Saul. Maybe not in the sense of murdering a town of priests, huh? but maybe we've persisted in trying to build our own kingdom at the expense of humble obedience to God. Maybe we found ourselves in a position where we've dug ourselves into deeper and deeper holes. Maybe we feel like we are just too far gone, like Saul. Point of no return, cannot come back. And no point trying to live life God's way when we've already failed so many times in so many ways. Well, friends, if, if any of you feel that way, I want to tell you that there is a key difference between Saul and us, that we have the hope of the gospel of Jesus because the price that Jesus paid on the cross, there is no, nothing that that cannot overcome. Okay? There, there is never a moment when we are too far gone in our sins to turn back to God through faith in Jesus. The moment we turn towards God in faith, the moment we decide to, to really seek the Lord and follow His ways, 
whether it's for the first time or the, the second time or the thousandth time, we can be counted together with God, uh, counted together with David, being people after God's heart, wanting to pursue what God wants, and that is humble repentance. Let's now pause for our next question. Is there a path that you're currently on that is leading you away from God? And for the kids, are there any things you do now that God wouldn't like? Now, I only have two reflection questions for you today. And so for this second one, I just want you to reflect on this question. Okay, no need to discuss, but just reflect on this question. Whatever the Lord brings to the surface, just bring it before the Lord. Ask Him, Lord, you brought this to my mind. You brought this to my heart. What do you want me to do with this? Okay, ask Him that. And parents with your children, uh, take this opportunity to lead your child in a short and simple prayer of repentance for both yourself as well as for them. Okay, we'll take two minutes for this. In conclusion, friends, I'd like you to know that how we respond to our mistakes is absolutely crucial. Not just the fact that we make mistakes, but how we respond to it. I'd like you to be quick and ready to admit responsibility for our actions, that we'll be courageous in owning up, and do pursue God's heart in the hope of the gospel of Jesus, that we are never too far gone 
to turn back to pursue God's heart. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.